This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, episode number 66. My name is Dominic. I'm one of the co-hosts of this show. The other co-host is named Janus, who will be joining us shortly. Today we speak to author Gregory Peters from the original New Falcon website. Gregory Peters is a researcher and explorer of non-dual tantra, consciousness, and the convergence of Eastern and Western spiritual practices. He is initiated in Hindu, Buddhist, and Western Tantric lines, and is a senior adept in various occult traditions. Through his written works, he delves into the mystical and energetic dimensions of human experience, drawing from his experience with Tantra, Dream Yoga, and Esotericism to explore the awe and wonder of embodied experience. And what we will be talking with Gregory about is the Yogini, and his book on the Yogini, which is titled Yogini Magic. You can find that on newfalcon.com, as well as other places that you buy books. You can find more about Gregory at his website, gregorypetersauthor.com. Before we jump into the episode, we would like to thank our Patreon supporters. Because of your support, we can do what we do. If you'd like to support this work and ensure that we continue creating content month after month, year after year, feel free to head over to Patreon, look us up, and do what feels right for you. We dedicate this to Hermes and Asclepius, and may any merit accumulated doing this work be distributed to all sentient beings so that they, together with us, may equally realize awakening. Welcome to the show. We are really excited to speak with Mr. Gregory Peters today. He's the author of Yogini Magic, as well as the out-of-print Magical Union of East and West through Llewellyn. Um, We are going to discuss Yogini, Dakini, I'm sure we'll touch on Kali and all sorts of other things. Welcome to the show, Gregory. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to have you on. This is going to be an intriguing conversation. Yeah, long time in the works. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> absolutely yeah well, that's just a sign that you know it was uh there's a lot of energy behind it exactly totally. we got the momentum going so let's keep that momentum and uh maybe start off as we usually do just kind of discussing a little bit about your background uh specifically how you got into this topic and and we'll just run from there yeah the yoganis specifically are an interesting presence for me i mean i would say 
the first indications that that I was working with them was when I was in Nepal. Um, I was trekking through Nepal and it's just, it's, uh, I mean, that, that location in general is just such a magical and, and spiritual place. So it really kind of puts your consciousness, your awareness into a whole different kind of setting, I guess. I mean, at least for me, it was a total reset in, in a lot of ways. And yeah, so I was solo trekking through Nepal. I, I had a, a local guide who was, was helping me out, but during those, you know, those long hours, just solitary in the mountains with, you know, a lot of time, nothing but the crunch of your feet underneath and, and the sound of the wind through, through the mountains or through the different trees, things just started to come together in an energetic sense. And that was where Kali in particular I had my first direct experience of her. I talk about this a bit in the book, but it was, it came across in such a way that, that, you know, after the, the initial kind of hit it, it felt like I like my, (laughs) sorry, I'm stumbling over myself because there's, there's just a lot of emotions involved with it, but it's, it was, it was like this, this vision and and this sensory experience and kind of everything just hit all at once. And it was, it was stunning. It's kind of the word I always come back to it. It stunned my mind. And there was just this complete cool silence. And then a mantra starts resounding in my head. And I don't know, time-wise, I mean, it wasn't very long, right? Like I'm sure maybe just a minute or two. And then my my rational mind starts kicking back in and going through all these these different conditions like oh maybe it's altitude sickness or <laughs> you know all mm-hmm. all these kind of uh, different sort of explanations for it but that that experience stuck with me and it came home with me I mean she came home with me in in a very direct way. Are you open to talking a little bit about what you saw or encountered during that experience? Because you're you're speaking about the goddess Kali, right? Right. Yeah. I mean that was that was how I interpreted her. It was it was Kali. It was the goddess. And her her presence is all over Nepal, of course, but it was a full sensory experience. So I mean there was there was the scent of of uh some perfume, some wildflower scent. And then the vision of, you know, this, this goddess with all of this hair, her face right in front of me, her three eyes looking right into my heart and the, the mantra cream, which was just resounding in, I mean, in everything really. Um, And just this, this pulsation, this, this incredible, radiance everywhere i mean you you look at iconography of her and she appears very dark and and scary and foreboding but this experience she was radiance i mean she just it was like her hand reached into my skull cracked it open and just nectar pouring in the most incredible bliss and and radiance and just contentment really that that flowed through 
And it's, it's, it's something that, I mean, even today I continue to, to kind of process because you get a little more of it every time I kind of liken it to when you have a really intense dream and while you're in the dream, you know, there are so many details and so many experiences that you have time seems to stand still, or maybe it goes really fast or slow, but then you wake up and there's just that essence of the dream of the details. But then the more you go back and analyze it and, and meditate on it, details start to come back and, and elaborate. And it's almost like that initial impulse, it's an initiation it plants a seed and that seed continues to grow inside of you and things come out of it <laughs> is, is really how, how I think of it. And one of those, those things, I guess, was the 64 yoginis. When I first started working with them, I called them dakinis. Um, dakini, of course, appears in Tibetan Buddhism, which had been most of my experience before I got to, to Nepal through working with uh, Namkai and Norbu and Dzogchen practices. But really, I wasn't getting into the really esoteric stuff. So it was essentially more meditation, contemplation, I would say, that type of thing, just coming into this awareness of intrinsic awareness, this sort of non-dual awareness. What was I saying? Yeah, Dakinese. So Dakini was the term I was familiar with, but then I also learned fairly early on that Dakinis are also spoken about in, in the Hindu tantras and in Hinduism. Dakini just means witch, essentially. Um, yeah. Right. So Dakinis, Yoginis, I quickly found out that the two terms are referring to the same types of beings. Although depending on what context they appear in, they may have very different forms and, um, roles, I guess you could say. And I think the more well-known roles tend to come from the, the tantric Buddhist side, the Vajrayana side with the Dakinis. So you have, you know, these, these treasure revealers and, and protectors, right? The Dakinis um, guard the teachings. They may reveal teachings. They're pretty closely associated with this idea of energy. And you can see where that comes from on the Hindu tantric side, because again, yoginis have this association with Shakti, which is power, the ultimate power, feminine power specifically, but it's embodied by, by everyone, by everything, really, depending on how you're looking at it. Mm-hmm. And they also, the yoginis, have these different powers associated with them. They may be guardians as well, but they have a very different appearance than you'll find in uh, Nepal, for example. So these kind of things all started to, to come together in my own personal practice. I mean, I didn't have any type of formal instruction when it came to to the yoginis it was more a case of where i'd be working with with kali and just get these impressions of additional energies that were around the circle where i'm working and i just started researching into 
Kali herself and her, her different uh, sadhanas and practices. And it was like the light bulbs started to switch on, <laughs> you know, as I realized, oh, these, these energies have names and they have forms. And that explains why I'm seeing this over here or feeling this when, you know, this other thing happens. So Greg, uh, may I ask you something? Yeah. Would you say that, so I love how you're describing this because it's it's clear that this is insight that originated in experience, experience. you know, you're, you're talking about experientially derived insight, which is something that we are, we're very much focused on with our work with this podcast. Um, but my mm-hmm. question for you is, would you then say that the Yogini are, it's almost seems as if you're describing them as emanations of Kali. So that's one of the, the interesting aspects of them. They are very protean, you know, they're hard to, to nail down. And I try to go over this in the book, some of the different ways they've been presented through the literature and just through, through traditions and people's experience. But I mean, you're, you're exactly correct in the sense that according to some traditions, they are emanations of, of the goddess and that goddess might be represented as Kali. Um, another common representation is as Tripura Sundari. She, she has yoginis as well. So any of the goddesses that, that you might take a closer look at, their sadhanas will, their, their tantric sadhanas will often have these yoginis associated with them. And for those who are listening, um, who are coming from a more Western approach, sadhana just means practice, uh, esoteric or, or, or ceremonial yeah. or ritual or yogic practice. Would you? Is that correct, Greg? That's correct. Yeah, I tend to to classify a sadhana as usually a tantric practice, as opposed to puja, which is the outer worship, sort of the ritual practices. So, sadhana and puja, two different. Two different ways of approach in these contexts. So it's it's really going to depend on one's point of view. So if you're coming in through, say, one of these very traditional tantric lineages, um, say a, a Kala lineage, you would be taught a specific set of, of yogini names that are associated with uh, the yantra, the magical diagram that describes a particular deity and her her palace her universe right so these are kind of the encoded forms of of the yoginis that that came into the tantric lineages but predating a lot of these these formal lineages um the yoginis were countless We've, I mean, there's, there's been research that has found different name lists with not a lot of surrounding ritual around them. Sometimes it's just, you know, uh, engraved names, 64 names with no description whatsoever. These are called, uh, Namavali name lists. And these, so the different villages in India, each one may have a different set of, of yoginis and, it's kind of like um, 
angel lists in a way where you can have like maybe different Michaels, you know, maybe Michael and Archangel, Michael, uh, a lower angel, all these, all these entities named Michael, but they're different energies. So in the same way on these Namavalis, you can find yoginis that may have the same name, but they're completely different just energetically. So <laughs> I guess my point was that, yeah, from, from the perspective of emanations of the goddess. So if you look at something like the Devi Mahatmya, which is an, an older text that describes the, the goddess Durga and the emanation of, of Kali from Durga's forehead and these great battles against different demons and whatnot, the yoginis come out as emanations of, of the goddess, be it Kali or Durga or Triparasundri and so on. And that's that tends to be how I look at them as emanations of the goddess, but that's also because I tend to see everything as emanations of the goddess as as Shakti. Right, right. But the beauty of it is that there is no one answer. If you're going to work with the yoginis, you have to be comfortable with ambiguity and with with shadows and with maybe never having a final answer. And that's a scary thing for Western esotericists because yeah. there's always a need for some answer. With <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, nothing is definite here. And I, I cringe every time that, you know, someone comes out with, oh, well, this is this is what a yogini is. And, you know, this is how you have to work with them. And you have to do this and this. It's like, well, OK, that might be true in a certain context or with a certain guru's tradition. But what does the yogini tell you? What's your direct experience? <laughs> I mean, it's like trying work. to speak for what the goddess is, right? I mean, like, how can you actually speak for for the goddess or for that? For, I mean, from a tantric perspective, that's also like trying to fathom the depths of womanhood as, as men were utterly incapable of doing that. And how much yeah. more so with the with the yogini or the takini or the goddess? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Greg, two questions. One prior to your your kind of experience up in the mountains uh, that you just described did you have any kind of relationship or um, devotion or study into kali and second question once you started to experience these things how did you begin to approach or pursue the the yogini what was the next step there so as far as a, a relationship with Kali, I had always had a, a kind of weird or at least an unexplainable attraction to images of her. I mean, I can remember back even being, um, you know, like maybe 16, 17 years old or something and seeing a, um, a little framed photograph of her in a, in a store on Haight Street in San Francisco and just thinking, wow, what is this? And picking that up, I wish I still had it. That would be amazing. Mm -hmm. um, so there was nothing, you know, I had no formal instruction or anything. I just knew I was attracted to, to that visually. Yeah. Which is extra funny just because of, I mean, the house I grew up in, it was pretty straightforward. <laughs> I guess nothing, nothing too interesting or esoteric going on there. 
you know, my parents were nominally Roman Catholic, I guess, but not really. Like they would, mm-hmm. my dad would go to mass on on Christmas morning once in a while. That was about it. Um, so yeah, there was that. There was basically this this instant attraction to her, this instant connection in that sense. But fast forward several decades before my trip to Nepal, I had gone through a pretty nasty divorce and was sort of re reassessing my life up to that point and what I'd been, you know, what I'd been doing, what sort of path I'd gone. And as part of that process, I had actually gotten some instruction on a Kali Sadhana that I was working with pretty intensely. And this was part of uh, another system that I was working with at the time for the Typhonian order. I'll just throw that out there. Um, <laughs> as part of a process with that, I was working on this sadhana pretty intensely. And I took that with me to Nepal. So that was kind of my my framework, I guess you would say, mm-hmm. you know, in the background. And maybe it just ripened at the right time. Maybe it was the conditions. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was, um, you know, a lot of things that built up to that period, but it all just sort of came together up in the mountains and sort of took me in a, a very different direction than, than anything I would have expected. Okay. That's interesting. Makes sense. What was the, uh, the, the second other- one? Yeah. Yeah. How did you start to pursue the, the Yogini at that point? So, yeah, so originally I was just working with the original sadhana, and as sadhanas go, the more, it's it's like with any discipline, I guess, you know, as as you do it, as you really go deep into it, it starts to change, and it starts to change you, mm-hmm. obviously, that's why, that's, or at least, <laughs> hopefully that's one of the reasons that, that people are, are doing this stuff to get some sort of uh, transformative experience or, or awareness, I guess. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, it's like something Crowley said in one of his writings about how you, you might come to, to magic for one reason, but you end up, you know, doing it for, for a very different reason as you get deeper into it. Right. So the sudden, uh, continued to mature with, with that type of practice, you typically have, a time scale that's set up that you're working with. So for example, I had committed to do the original sadhana for five years. I ended up doing it for over 11 years. And I would say a lot of these other connections tended to open up while in the space that was created by doing the sadhana. So by repeatedly formally encountering the goddess, things would start to open up. And by things, I mean, outside of the sadhana. So sadhana is like, okay, you have a circle, you're sitting in a circle, you're doing these practices in a certain set time and place. But how does that bleed outside of this sort of artificial space you've, you've set up? You know, how does that, how does that get entangled into every aspect of your life? How does that really crack open your heart Mm -hmm. and your experience and that is is really one of the mysteries of of a tantric discipline i think is how it starts to to do this 
I mean, they call it the the grace of of the Devi or grace of Guru that that transforms your practice, which I guess is one of the reasons that you know you can't just read a read a ritual and and hope to get some experience just like that. That's that's one of the ideas behind it, I guess. Well, yeah, that's kind of the point, right? To of tantra to to kind of embody that practice. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and another I, thing that I I think that's useful for people coming from a Western perspective to understand is that these aren't energized thought. These aren't thought forms energized by ceremony. These are not that not that ceremony doesn't have an energizing effect, but when you're talking about Ma Devi or Shakti or Kali, or when you're talking about the Dakinis or or the Yogini, you're talking about independently existent self-aware entities with their own consciousness proclivities uh desires and i I think that that's worth maybe looking at and talking about a little bit is that these are not these aren't these aren't things we are constructing in a memory palace or through Hmm. ceremonial ritual where these are those the the sadhanas that you're describing are used to adapt to and harmonize with and communicate with them, but they exist on their own with or without us. Would you say that's correct or incorrect? I would say that's absolutely correct. Yeah. The So the sadhana, the formality of the sadhana is, it provides an initial structure. It's a launch pad. Um, but the key is you have to be willing to, to step beyond that at a certain point. And obviously not too early, because <laughs> you don't want to to give up that structure, and I'm I'm saying sadhana, but there could be a lot of of ritual practices or te- techniques that might might lead one in this direction. But what happened in my case was it started to open up to things like dream yoga, and I, I talk about this a bit in the book as well, and give some some ideas on how to, to develop that aspect. But a lot of the connections with, with the yoginis would start coming through dreams for me. And I also I should have mentioned this earlier, but I also have a pretty strong uh, just meditation practice to supplement these types of things. I mean, if anything, I do more meditation than ritual at this point. And it is through meditation and through dreams that a lot of the communications would come through. And in fact, a lot of this book, Yogini Magic, came through dream work and just through realizations that happened while meditating, because that is what would open me up to, to these voices, to these energies and and visualizations that would that would come through. That's always the tricky thing. It's like, how do you you can put it in a book, but it's more about just the energy of experience. You know what I mean? So it's like how I've, I've had people come up to me and say, well, how, how do I experience it the way you've experienced it? How do I experience them the way you experience them? And that's something I still, <laughs> still try to, I'm trying to figure out, like, how do you convey that? I mean, I've, I've had a few people tell me that the book is, is contagious and and just reading it, it sort of opens them up, and that's 
in a way an entry point and then they start working with with these energies with these goddesses and that's that's fantastic if if that happens and they are real i mean these these yoginis are real they're 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 live they're they're powerful they're animated yeah and i love that you're talking about the liminal space of dreams because you you what we can talk forever intellectually about what dreams are but for the esotericist for the for the yogi for the magician dreams are more than just just a epiphenomenon of conscious of of consciousness arising from from the from the brain or the or the processing of sensory information they're a means of communication with the immaterial and the transubstantial yeah absolutely now i want to ask you something you call them witch goddesses could you elaborate on why you use that terminology it was a bit of a play on on the literal meaning of duckany witch and then their association as as goddesses i mean i do see them as goddesses in their own right as well as emanations of the the great goddess so witch goddesses sorceresses enchantresses you know all of these were kind of terms that were were coming to me and that were just really really flooding me as i'm working with them and and experiencing some of them and it just seemed like a way to sort of try and bridge the gap because by the gap i mean to to more of a a pagan western magical audience i don't know if that that worked (laughs) fully but but my intent was okay i could have just written another eastern tantric book and it could have been focused on the yoganis and that sort of thing that would be awesome in and of itself. Fantastic. But the, the real inspiration that I felt was, okay, how do I present these beings to, to more of a Western audience and, and show that, you know, you don't have to be halfway across the globe in order to, to encounter a yogini. They're right here. You know, space and time are, are something that, that our little brains create a model of so that we can you know interact (laughs) in this timeline or what have you but but for the yoginis they you know they're they're i would call them trans-dimensional in that sense i mean for them time and and space are are playthings they're toys and they can manipulate that so sure certain geographical locations might have different aspects of the energies different ways of contacting them but I wanted to present the yoginis in a context that might be a little more familiar to quote unquote Westerners. So in a pagan tradition. So that's, if you look at um, some of the rituals that are, that are in the book, there's two reasons that they tend to appear more, more Western, like even from, from witchcraft or Wicca. I mean, one of them is that the actual yogini rituals or ways to approach them I mean, first of all, they wouldn't go over too well in in Western civilization. <laughs> if you're looking at the roots of them, I mean, we're talking about things like blood sacrifices. Um, Ritual with corpses, decapitated corpses. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and then, you know, it, it goes on and on. I mean, I talk about this on in the book as well. But, you know, how... Like in my approach to them, it's been a little different, <laughs> you might say. And 
I don't use a whole lot of ritual when I'm working with them because just of, of the ways that they've interacted. It's more meditation, I guess, more visualizations, spontaneous imagery, that kind of thing. Um, sensory experience with the world. But I put rituals in the book because I wanted people to have some kind of, uh, some kind of framework, you know, cause if you're coming at it cold and you want, okay, I want to work with the yoganis. What do I do? You need to have some kind of framework mm -hmm. unless, unless they're reaching out and, and poking you. And yeah, you talked about the bridge. <clears throat> and I think a lot of Western audiences would be familiar with like a, a Hecate as like a flesh eating mm -hmm. witch goddess. Uh, there's, there's some similarities there in, in some versions of her. Um, I also see a, a kind of a similarity in the followers of Dionysus. I mean, there's the, there's mm -hmm. the wine aspect, but there's also the, that flesh eating aspect. Um, that's an interesting connection that I've, I've seen. Yeah. As far as the rituals and the practices in the book that you lay out. Now, do these come from traditional practices? Cause I'm I'm not familiar with how things are going in the modern day um, as far as these practices, but the impression I got was that a lot of Indians around this area where where these practices took place are are fearful of Yogini and Dakini, and I don't know mm -hmm. that are these practices still taking place. Yeah, those are great questions. So they are still taking place. Usually, it is you know, very secretive, obviously, mm -hmm. and within certain tantric lineages. And I mean, one of, one of the interesting things, or maybe it's, maybe it's infuriating, maybe it's fascinating. I don't know, but every lineage will, will have its own approach and its own sort of way of interpreting the teachings. So, you know, in, in one case, there might be say a, a meat offering. Another guru might interpret meat as uh, okay, we're not going to use animals. We're going to use um, ginger, pretty common substitute. But yeah, so there are still living tantric traditions. Um, I've worked with some of them. These days, I tend to be a lot more independent, but it is it is out there. I would think for, for yogini-specific instruction, though, you would have to stick with a particular lineage for a fairly long time you know, to, to get that level of, uh, trust. Yeah. And, and honestly, I think a lot of them are reconstructions at this point. Mm. I'm, I'm pretty skeptical of, of any kind of unbroken tradition claims of an unbroken tradition. There's probably stuff out there, but I don't think you're going to find it on the web. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you need to, to go to to the villages in in India, probably. I mean, around the the Yogini temples, there's still there's still a lot of talk, I guess, and and sort of superstition surrounding them. And I'm sure that there's there's some wild sadhus that have have continued different traditions, you know, at, at those temples throughout all these these times. But we don't necessarily hear about them. They haven't really been been studied. So let me ask you this: It sounds like the uh, reading in your book, and then doing my own research on the yogini. Another thing that really strikes me is the fact that their temples are so different 
from the typical temples you yeah. you see in India, and there seems to be a reason for that. There's right? There's a lot of speculation on what the reason is, um, but yeah, the temples are are a very different architecture. So there are these circular temples with no ceiling, so they're open to the sky. Um, usually, there's a a pedestal in the middle where a representation of Shiva may have been as as Bhairav, the the tantric fierce version of of Shiva. And then around the inside alcoves are often 64, but sometimes 81 or, um, you know, different combinations of of alcoves where Yogini statues were. Most of them have have gone missing or have found their ways to different museums around the world at this point. There should probably be a great Yogini (laughs) reckoning at some point where they all come back together. But, um, no, the temples are are fascinating in that sense. So they're completely open to the sky. And it seems like that's another thing to me that struck me because I know that in Tantric Buddhism, the Dakini are definitely associated yeah. with the sky. And so there's this element not only of association with dreams, but with yeah, the sky, exactly. right? I mean, the, the yoginis are thought of as, again, the witch symbolism comes up because witches fly through the sky as well. Yeah, yeah the yoginis... There's some descriptions of them where, you know, they, they come flying through the sky with their hair totally wild and making these terrifying noises on, on the night winds as they descend. Yeah, I mean, it's just in, incredible imagery associated with them. As far as I know, there's no records that have been found yet in the West that I'm aware of that that have described the actual ceremonies that may have been conducted in these these temples but that's both a blessing and a curse in a way because you can look at the different tantras and sort of piece things together intuitively but i think more importantly it just it opens the the door it opens the gateway to how do these energies interact with you now directly i mean what what is the circular temple but the circle of consciousness. That's what I was going to ask you yeah. if you thought that. Yeah. And it also occurs to me that your mind training that you did yeah. with Chen probably prepared you for this. Because I, I know that at least in some schools of Tantra, Kali is considered to be consciousness itself. And so when you're experiencing the, the state of pure consciousness unfettered by the scaffolding of, of uh, discursive mm-hmm. awareness... You could say, in a sense, that you're experiencing Kali, and isn't isn't also yeah. the sky associated with yeah, mind itself? Yeah, exactly. Um, and in fact, things like sky gazing—that's a, a practice to to help get into or to help become aware of the nature of consciousness itself. You know, this vast open sky, which is the mind. So we have this intriguing connection here. On the one hand, with narratives of the actions of say witches as we find in the european medieval narratives and the the actions of these these figures in this tantric tradition in in the east and then on the other hand there's this interesting this interesting element here of dream and of sky and of mind and of consciousness mm. which is just amazing and i would say even miraculous but also elusive because 
you're dealing with a with, with something that really has to do with experiencing pure consciousness yeah. itself and 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 it's amazing to me because there's this there's this really transcendent aspect but then this imminent aspect to yeah. the dakini too yeah definitely and that's that's one of the their most powerful aspects i think is that exactly they're both transcendent and imminent i mean and that depending on how you approach them is how they respond in kind hey but you know i i went off on a tangent and completely didn't even answer the ritual question <laughs> oh that's okay <laughs> but yeah i was gonna say that in the so a lot of the tantric specific rituals that you'll find in the book are from the the source text i was working with the kala yana nirnaya oh cool yeah but they're they're sort of reworded obviously and and reframed in in more of a western context and then but you know if you if you were to look at the heart of these these rituals and go into tantric sadhana and you know analyze with with a tantric viewpoint you would see that it's essentially that Mm -hmm. it's it's the core of the practice um and then the western stuff was sort of a framework around that so you've got you know a circle you've got a circle in tantra you've also got a circle in for example wicca um so i it's i don't know it was it was it was an attempt to kind of bring the two together it may or may not have been successful from a ritual standpoint it it works great for me (laughs) It's always interesting to see how how it affects people if if they work with it. So we've touched for a minute on the um, transcendent side of things, consciousness, dreams, meditation, the sky. But we, the yogini, they really are very imminent, and they seem to be associated with different animals, yeah. trees locales could you speak a little bit on on that aspect too because they seem to be very closely associated with nature itself. yeah there's a strong natural connection i would say i mean almost to the point where i mean so i i live in an area where i can get out into nature pretty easily and it's always just this very <laughs> psychedelic experience in a way because the wind is talking, the trees are talking, um, different animals that I encounter are, are talking. And this kind of goes back to, to some of the, the older tantric texts, which will give indications such as, you know, Kali or the yoginis may appear as a, a black cat or a, a coyote or a wolf or a raven you know, these types of things and, or, or even any, any animal, any female animal specifically tends to be seen as a sign for, of, of the goddess and of the yoginis. And if you engage in that as a practice, as a conscious awareness practice, just throughout your days, it really busts open this, this line between, you know, what we think of as materialism and the dream world and, you know, what is consciousness? Because suddenly you realize that, you know, wow, I'm like, I'm in this mandala. This mandala is alive. And 
these beings are popping in and out of awareness. You know, they may be going about their business or they may be taking interest in me, but it's, it's this, this living vision of just this constant exchange of energy between yourself, between the yoganis, um, the world, you know, where, where is that dividing line? Is there a dividing line? And I think the more that you engage with them and the more that you sort of have this taste of consciousness and standing as awareness, it just really dissolves any kind of, of boundaries in that sense. And they were depicted with animal animal features and animal heads in, in some cases, right? Yeah, more often than not, they have these, these animal forms. Um, so usually they would appear as these uh, female, human female beings with different types of animal heads. And no one really knows the source of that. I mean, there's, there's tons of speculation and there's, there's even scholarly, you know, papers examining it with, with different theories. But I mean, again, with the yoginis, it really, it tends to be undefined and, there is no one answer. Got it. Got it. Would you would you advise caution when working with them? Um, is there any danger? Because, like I said earlier, that like the, it seems like uh, modern people in those areas tend to be superstitious when it comes to these things. Yeah. and it sounds like there there is some potential for danger when it comes to these forces and these entities. What's your experience, and and how would you address that? I would absolutely say that caution is required. I mean, they should be approached with, with respect, you know, Mm -hmm. very respectful, very open to approaching them as they are, instead of coming with, you know, your, your preconceived notions or what you want to get out of them. Um, Like the whole transactional thing. Sure, there is there is some of that kind of energy exchange where okay, if I give you this offering, will you do this for me? But I've always preferred to take it to to a, just a deeper level, like an actual relationship. You know, I mean, there's there are some people that you might instantly get along with, and there are people that you might think, oh, they look kind of dangerous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Sure. Um, but but with all of the yoginis, they they tend to have a very fierce appearance, you know, carrying swords, uh, severed heads, blood dripping fangs. And it's interesting because one one fascinating interpretation of this that I heard once about their depictions, um, this was from uh, Stella Dupois, who's written a lot of uh, yogini books, has done a ton of research with with them she commented that you know maybe they were depicted so fiercely because it was meant to keep the uninitiated away so it's both this this intrigue of like oh wow that's a very beautiful figure but then as you come in a little closer you see these fangs and blood and and bones and whatnot is that maybe a gateway are they sort of saying you know don't don't come closer unless you have a a clear heart, a clear intent, you have respect, you have love. That's kind of how I interpret it. 
So if you look at if you look at sort of the the traditional approaches in the tantras, they'll say things like you shouldn't even recite their names unless you have that specific lineage behind you, because the yoginis within the tantric lineages are also associated with protecting that lineage itself. Mm. But there are, and that that kind of sends me on a tangent of where where did those traditions come from in the first place. And I think I go off a little bit about that in the book and this idea of, you know, the, the yoginis are these wild, untamable goddesses. They pretty much do what they want of their own will. So who was it that said, okay, well, this grouping of yoginis is only associated with, with this teaching. This grouping of yoginis is only associated over here. And it comes down to, to men, to priesthood <laughs> and control trying to to control these different powers i think maybe through pretty big offerings to to gain their attention so that they would protect a particular lineage mm-hmm. i don't know nobody knows but if you look at the some of the buddhist context for dakinis you can sort of see that pattern as well right where uh, one of these spirits was subjugated and made to to protect the Dharma, mm-hmm. that type of thing. Right. But going back to the original question, are they dangerous? Should you approach them carefully? Absolutely. You know, don't don't approach it flippantly. Don't do it out of idle curiosity. Do it because you feel a connection or you want to experience them in a in a direct way. And if if approached with with a pure heart, with pure intentions, then they do tend to respond in a favorable way or at the very least they they won't respond to you at all but they're not gonna bite your head off unless you're approaching the wrong way (laughs) just like a person i mean if you're interacting with a person who is you know if you're coming up to like somebody who is of a high station who's noble you should be approaching them with reverence and respect and you know a genuine sincerity absolutely yeah it is it's a relationship i mean i always come back to that you know how would you treat someone that you are in love with your mind is always going to be thinking of them you're going to be wanting to make them happy you'll be bringing them nice things these are offerings um you know your whole demeanor will be different than if you are just going to uh, i don't know you just want to you just want to throw something down and get something back in return. <laughs> and sure, you might get a response, but it's going to be very different energetically. Now, Greg, question. In your book, you'd speak about the matrikas. There's Brahmi, Maheshvari, Kamari, yeah. Vaishnavi, Varahi, Indrani, Yogeshvari, Agareshi. Uh, who are the matrikas? And and what's the relationship between the matrikas, the I guess the sahaja matrikas? I yeah. hope I said that correctly. And the yogini, they seem to be yogini, but at the same time, they're their own category of yogini. That's right. That yeah, right? they seem to have come about a little bit later. So the yoginis themselves seem to have sort of developed out of these these different um, tribal traditions and different village traditions, and then over time they seem to have been collected into you know you could almost think of them as like 
super yoginis, I guess, or <laughs> the queens of yoginis. And these were the, the matrikas, the, the mothers. So usually there's the sapta matrikas. There's seven of them, which are, are pretty common. Um, but in the Kala Nyana Nirnaya, which seems to found a yogini cult, there are these eight matrikas that are listed. And they really are like the, the, the generals of, of the goddess's army in a lot of ways. So it really comes into play if you're working with, with yantras, the diam, the, the diagrams that, that show the different energies in a, in visual form. But each of the eight yoginis emanates, sorry, each, each of the eight matrikas emanates yoginis out of herself. So it kind of goes from the goddess to the matrikas and then out to the yoginis, the sort of endless flow of, of the energies. So it's a flow from the cosmic to the particular. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it, actually. And for anyone familiar with Indian Tantra or even esoteric Buddhism, this is something that you see. You see this, this flowing forth, this flowing forth of, of, of this uh, form. What's interesting to me um, personally is the numerical symbolism of 8 and 64, because you have the number 8 and then it's fully unfolded into 8 multiplied by itself uh, in the 64 Yogini. That's super interesting to me because both 8 and 64 are numbers that are very intimately related with Mercury. Like if you have the planetary yeah. square of Mercury, it has 64 squares in it, and 8 is the number of, of Hermes or Mercury or, or, or you know whatever. And it's also, of course, the number of the compass. It's the number of the eight directions of space. And in fact, in, in some of the tantric rituals, you address the eight directions of space. So it might be with the uh, matrikas, or it might just be um, some undefined energy, but essentially you're dealing with these different directions in space to form your ritual space. So instead of just a circle, you're actually creating more of a sphere with these points. Hmm. And how, how concrete is this number 64? I, I thought I read somewhere that that was kind of the popular number, but in some temples, that necessarily wouldn't be, it wouldn't necessarily always be 64. It could be 40 yeah. something. Yeah, that's right. Sometimes 81. 64 seemed to pop up the most, but yeah, yeah. there's definitely no, not a lot of consistency, at least as far as the yoginis go. <laughs> and some of the, these yoginis have incredible, I love the names that you describe some of these yogini with in this in this book, I mean, it, it, it's incredible. Like eternal dark goddess, mother of the yeah. sorcerers, um, <laughs> uh, enchantress of terrifying form who enjoys blood, auspicious dark goddess, mother of the world. This one, uh, Mahakali Sideshvari, yeah. radiant dark queen of the shaman magicians. I'm sorry, but these are some rad names. <laughs> so those you know, <laughs> I, I agree they're pretty amazing <laughs> but though yeah as far as the english translations go those came about through working with them i would say that was the longest part of of the book was was sort of bringing those pieces together because a lot of that came through meditation and dream work the english is 
is sort of a, a lyrical interpretation of what the the Sanskrit names mean, you know. So like uh, Yogini number four, Karukala Rasanatha. Karukala is a Dakini associated with with witchcraft, with magic. Well, they all are, right? But in the Tibetan stream, at least, she is particularly associated with sorcery and magic and that type of thing. So mistress of sorcery. And then Razanatha, she's offering a skull cup of nectar, Raza. And Natha, Natha is lord or lady, so the mistress part comes out. So they just kind of came together intuitively while working with them. But the actual name lists themselves, this particular one, it, it actually threw me for a loop, which goes back to the whole ambiguous aspect of the yoginis because i had been working with this particular set of names for a pretty long time i mean like you know 11 12 years or something and i was pretty sure that this was the names that were recited in the temple in kamakya in assam india but it's not (laughs) i later found out that this set of names actually came through a lot later these this 64 goddesses were from um sorry, I'm totally blanking on the name, but there was there was a, a more contemporary guru who works with Kriya Yoga, and apparently he received these names in his work and his transmissions. Um, and then he just he revealed it out to, to the world for everyone to work with them. And yeah, it was it was kind of cool. He's I don't know anything about the um this particular teacher, but whatever he contacted, those those yogini names that are associated with Kriya Yoga really were easy to tap into for me and really carry a powerful essence to them. So that's where that name list came from. And then I've got a few other ones in in the back of the book that have been collected. So something I wanted to ask you about is um what are the the five M's and how are they how do you how are they used in conjunction with the veneration of the yogini? So yeah, the five M's, the famous tantric uh offerings, they're called the five M's because each of the words for the element in Sanskrit starts with an M. So you got uh Madhya which is wine, mamsa, matsya, and so on. These are sort of the the high tantric traditional offerings of of meat, parched grain, fish, um, wine. It's always it's always translated as wine, but it's essentially any kind of alcoholic or you know intoxicating beverage. And maituna, which is union, usually interpreted as sexual union. And these seem to have come from an earlier tradition where it was just meat and alcohol and possibly sexual union. So three three elements. But those are the traditional elements that are used in, you know, if you go and read some of the old Kala Tantras, like the Kala Nyananarnaya or the Kularnava Tantra, um, these sort of medieval classic tantras these elements are are talked about and there's or or even if um you're reading uh um arthur avalon 
yeah, Sir John Woodruff, all of his his tantric translations. He he talks about these quite a lot in his book Shakti and Shakta. But there's a lot of interpretation around these. You know, on on one level, there's a very little literal interpretation. Like, okay, offer meat, offer some rice, offer some some fish, and so on. Um, and then everybody gets intoxicated and there's some kind of ritual tantric sex to, to generate heat and bliss as an offering. But then depending on which, which tradition you're working with or which gurus are interpreting it for you, you might get totally different layers of interpretation. And, and some of this has to do with this sort of threefold aspect of, you know, there's, there's the Pasu, the beast interpretation, um, someone that probably shouldn't even be practicing Tantra in the first place. The Vira, who is the hero or an adept, the Tantric path is sort of traditionally associated with them. So maybe this is where the, the physical elements came into play more prominently. And then the Satya, or the, the highest level, the divine level, you might say, where the elements are totally transformed into just mind streams of, of nectar and, and energetic responses within the body that, that come from either the contemplation of these things or a different, different sort of experience of these things. Sort of like sadhana itself, where at first you're doing sadhana mechanically, maybe to get some sort of response but then later on, sadhana becomes more of a dance with the energies. You know, you're not doing it to get something. You're doing it because uh, the something enjoys it and is engaging with you. But the offerings, I mean, offerings are important in this work. However, they're being presented um, because it is through the offerings that energy is exchanged with the yoginis and how they come to they come in closer, they come closer to you, even to the point where, um, and this goes back to why you need to be cautious, you know, possession is a pretty common aspect of, of working with, with the yoginis, or just really powerful emotional responses or, or physical responses. I mean, things can become unhinged <laughs> if you're not, you know, if you're not, yeah, it, it, it just it just depends, right, on how how you're approaching them and what sort of your level of experience is and that kind of thing. That's intriguing, and it's interesting though because again, you have this sort of flowing between the immaterial and the mm. material. And I think one of the hallmarks of tantra is that even in the simple offerings of folk tantra, as practiced by somebody who we might consider to be unlettered there's still the fullness of the entire Tantra in that simple offering of humble meat and in, in devotion, because isn't it really the nectar yeah. of devotion? Beautiful. That's, that's absolutely right. And you know, how, how does that nectar of devotion transform energetically? Because in Tantra, you are dealing with, with energy the world is Shakti, it is power. And your consciousness is, is the nectar that is, is the base for, for this energy to flow. And 
So, I mean, okay, just, just as one example, the, the human body. In Tantra, you don't, we don't discard the body. We're not ignoring it. Instead, it's you are embodied. So your senses, your experiences, those can be offerings. Your, your taste is an offering. Your scent is an offering. Um, your touch is an offering. Your eyes, what, what you see, you know, that recognition as you look into another's eyes or as you look into the sky or maybe you see an animal or something. I mean, this, it's a full sensory experience that is represented by, for example, the five M's, but it's so much deeper than that. And I do talk, talk a bit about offerings in the book and I actually give some more gentle <laughs> approaches to offerings because again, how you engage with the energy is how it responds in kind. So it's an area that's, that's ripe for, for your creativity really. And for, for your ability to just get more in tune with, with your own heart and how that expresses itself. And then what is the response to that? You know, do you want it to be an artificial response or do you want something authentic, something that, that reaches into you directly and, and transforms you? It seems like such a focus is on freedom. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, you know, one, one of the, the yogini names and goddess names is Swatantra, which is basically by her own will, Swatantriya. Something else I find interesting is that there seem to be tribes of the yogini. Um, in your in yeah. your listing, for instance, you have the yoginis that dis- descend from the tribe of Kalinityas. Then you have the yoginis that descend from the tribe of Lalita, Triapurasundari Nityas, um, yoginis of the tribe of Great Wisdom, and there's also the there's also the yoginis who are of the tribe of serpents. So this is mm-hmm. so intriguing to me for so many reasons, not just the fact that they're definitely sort of grouped into their own tribes or families here, but also the symbolism of we're, we're seeing wisdom yeah. and serpents here. And for anybody familiar with, and you even use the word gnosis in this, for anyone familiar with Gnosticism, Sophia is directly associated with serpents and with wisdom and also with the bridging of, of the higher and the lower mm. in one figure. But these, these tribes seem to have, it's as if, if you're developing relationships with them and you have a certain aspiration towards spiritual development, it seems as though you might want to focus on a particular group of yogini. Yet, as you're saying, if you're really jumping into the practice and you're staying dedicated, you have no way of knowing where it's going to lead. That's right. And in fact, the deeper you go, the more they will lead you and take you in directions that, you know, you can't, you can't even begin to imagine. So having that, that openness and that willingness on your part to, to just engage with the unknown. I mean, because again, like this, this listing of yoginis that I have in the book, that's one that I've worked with that, that I connect with, but there are countless yoginis i mean they haven't even all been named so it's just it's a really 
deeply rich and rewarding area that you can engage with and, and dive deep into and possibly discover yoginis that, you know, have, have not even interacted with human consciousness before. I mean, just, just that idea really gives me chills, <laughs> you know, that it's just so, so open in that sense. So Greg, for people who are interested in this and want to pursue this a little bit more, other than your book, of course, what, what are some resources? That is a really excellent question. Um, it's something that, that I think about <laughs> because there isn't a whole lot out there when it comes to yeah. movies. Um, I mean, that's why I tried to give a wide variety of, of practices so that people could really start to engage with them and, and invite them into their, their life. May I interject? Uh, it seems to me like what you've been saying in this interview too might be pertinent is that the real resource is the direct experience. That's absolutely correct. I mean, yeah, you can read about them. I mean, I, I certainly do. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of research, especially in the past, uh, I don't know, 15 years or so. There's, there's a lot of research that has been coming out from academia and that's cool. It's fun to read about. Definitely. But that is so different from from the actual experience in working with them that, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm reluctant to, to list out books and research. Although one author that I really do like is uh, Kavita Chinayam. I think, I think I said her name correctly, hopefully. Um, but she has written a few books on the Lalita Tripura Sundri and the whole tradition of, of Lalita and Sri Yantra, which engages with the yoginis in a, in a very sweet and just, just nectar rich way that is, is beautiful. Fantastic. So I highly recommend her books. If you're going to read. How do you, how do you spell her name? So it's Kavita K A V I T H A. And then her last name is Chinayan, C-H-I-N-N-A-I-Y-A-N. Yeah, and I would recommend Fractals of Reality. What a cool name. Yeah, that's a really cool one. And that's got the 64 yoginis of the the Sri Yantra in it. So definitely worth checking out. Cool. And then her, another book of hers is Glorious Alchemy, which is just fantastic just reading it it's uh it's just filled with nectar so highly recommended it also seems to me uh, uh, like i we didn't even touch on this point but i think it's useful because we were talking about the circular temples etc you don't have to go to a yogini temple try and find a yogini temple it sounds like the crossroads mm. which is another intriguing connection or, or, or similarity, I should say, with, with witchcraft traditions, especially traditional witchcraft, the crossroads. It seems like you can go to the crossroads, and that's a, a very acceptable place to contact them. I'm surprised that didn't come up earlier, because it's it's so integral to it. The The crossroads are, I mean, any of these these liminal spaces, liminal is so overused anymore, but it's it's true. I mean, these places where... The dividing line between you know consciousness and the unconscious or self and other or material and immaterial or what what have you um the crossroads sum that up beautifully and 
you know, people reading the book, they might think, oh, he's just trying to to present it in a Western context. So he's talking about the crossroads, but no, not at all. It's actually from the Tantras, you know, the worship of Kali, the worship of these Tantric deities, the worship of the yoginis um, did not just occur in these circular temples, but at the crossroads or at the graveyards, um, you know, Smashan, the, the cremation grounds in India, these, these types of places are where the Tantric practitioners would go and crossroads in particular are pretty easy to to find at least in in my area but pretty much all over the place and they're fantastic energetic zones where you can leave an offering establish contact so yeah they're very very central to to a lot of this stuff so would i be correct in assuming that that's also symbolic crossroads like the place where a forest and the plains meet or uh the ocean like the where the ocean yeah. and the and the and the beach connects or or wild places where you know abandoned buildings and you know just places where people don't frequent where things are getting wild where things are becoming again liminal yeah beautifully put beautifully put i i think that's absolutely the case even things like um wakefulness and and sleep and and slipping into the dream realm that sort of transitional stage that's that's sort of the the ultimate one in a way uh because again as you work with yoginis it's not going to be just um okay i'm casting a circle or i'm making an offering they will start to seep into your dreams in unexpected ways and if you engage with them there i mean i have received Obviously, a lot of the book came through that, but then I've also, throughout the years, I've gotten mantras that are unique to my work or to a certain context, different types of, of yantras and, you know, meditative practices have, have come out of dream contact to the point where, as far as ritual goes, I would say I engage more in dream ritual than, than physical ritual at this point. I don't know. That's always a tricky one, right? Because... I mean, before coming to all this stuff, I had a ton of experience with Western ceremonial magic. And and I often wonder, you know, how much how much of that has has fed into this or, you know, how has that foundation helped to to have sort of a solid ground to to work with these energies? And I don't really know, <laughs> to be honest. It seems like there's a very astral part. Yeah. And that's another thing that you find in, you know, we say witchcraft. But I think we we could, we could also say sh- shamanism or shamanic, you know, because which when when we talk about, I guess anthropologically, quote unquote European witchcraft, we're we're really speaking about say a, the the indigenous shamanic tradition found among the the peoples of of that area, rather than the way that witches often uses in a pejorative way in many traditional cultures. I think what we're really talking about is a shamanic tradition of spirit flight. Yeah. I, I think that's very accurate. You know, from I am so inexperienced compared to you when it comes to this, but my little bit of experience I can say is that these I, I just want to emphasize for the listener again, this isn't these are very real, very real beings, very real it's like people. Yeah. I mean, not not human people in limited bodies, but they're people. They have they have opinions, they have desires, they have preferences, they ha- they have wills of their own. And and that's part of the mystery, I think, is you're dealing with 
to these these goddesses, these divine beings, but at the same time that 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 have this transcendent quality, but they the very imminent the very imminence of them is that they interact with you in a personal way. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, we we have maybe a rough idea of of what some of them might be interested in, I guess, but it really comes down to a personal one-on-one experience. You know, it's it's not it's not like a grimoire where okay, there's this this list of spirits and you know, this one does so and so and you must approach them this way and blah blah blah. This is it's it's a lot more wide open and just ambiguous and yeah, yeah, it can be scary, right? Because it is uncertain. You don't know what's going to happen a lot of the time. <laughs> but it it is just such a, a direct, such a visceral connection that occurs. Um, I mean, I've been doing when when I would do external rituals, my partner would be sitting with me during sadhanas sometimes, and I would just be silently reciting a mantra and she would start speaking in tongues or starting to, you know, spontaneous dance or, or weeping. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Just the, the effects that, that would occur, you know, not to mention what would happen to, to your own consciousness, but just, just the fact that people around you, that might not even be directly doing anything, get affected by it. You know, you need to tread carefully, obviously. <laughs> I mean, have have full consent and, and buy-in from, from people. And it sounds like you have to be comfortable with uncertainty and ambiguity and fuzziness. And as Westerners, we have trouble with that sometimes, especially especially those who are into ritual and things like that. They want they want this certainty, yeah. they want this specificity and you have to just like throw all that out and be comfortable being in that place absolutely i mean i i am actually very passionate about that aspect when whenever someone is telling me this is how a yogini is or or this is you know how to approach them this is the correct ritual i'm just you know i can get i might laugh or i might get angry but it's just the absurdity of you know, humans <laughs> thinking that, hey, we we understand this. We know what's happening here. And I mean, even even if you look at some of the, the oldest tantras, it's still really damn ambiguous because these these things were maybe it was an oral tradition, for example, never written down. And again, maybe it was it was dependent on the realization that one Siddha, one adept had. And then they started telling people about it. And then, you know, maybe that got codified into some kind of structure. But the yoginis just, I don't know, I i hear them laughing at structure and and that sort of thing. And just like, okay, you think this is how I am? Well, guess what? <laughs> Something completely different happens. Do you feel like experience with meditation is helpful? I know Dom is Dom, for instance, is a is a dedicated meditator, and I know you have many years of meditation experience under your yeah. belt, especially with your Zog. Yeah, I think I think it's essential. Practice. Frankly, I mean, not just for for yoginis, but but any kind of magical work or really any any practices, because we're talking about consciousness, we're talking about the mind. So 
Yeah, meditation has been foundational for me. I mean, I think that is what has helped to be able to to encounter the yoginis and how to to deal with them. Well, and to deal with the, the whole issue of of non-duality, ambiguity, mm. comfort with with those things. I think for me at least, that's where meditation really does help um, in those areas. Mm. Yeah, because you are kind of touching on that non-duality and that uh, interrelation between all things. And so for me, those distinctions between things don't aren't as important as maybe they used to be. And you, you see things, I've used this example before, but even in the Greek magical papyri, you know, totally different area of the world, mm. you have these spells that are like, um, you know, spell to this one particular god or goddess, a spell to Selene for... XYZ, but then Celine may not even be mentioned in the rest of the spell, and they're talking about all these other goddesses as Celine. So yeah, it it's confusing, especially for someone who's just starting out in into these things. Like, what what's going on here? I thought this was the spell to Celine. Why are they talking about Persephone and and all these other goddesses? And when you get to this place of non-duality, for me at least, or this meditation on those non-duality type ideas um those distinctions yeah just don't aren't as important anymore it's hard to explain yeah no i I definitely agree with that like it's so crazy how hard it can be to let things be simple to get unstuck was it who who wrote the one of the old new falcon books i think was uh undoing yourself through energy energized meditation classic (laughs) (laughs) from back in the day and and, you know but it's so excuse my language it's so fucking hard sometimes we're raised in this culture which just causes us to overthink everything but it's so freeing and such a peaceful experience and so wonderful to just get outside of that and just be free and be okay with not knowing the answers to everything and and be okay with the uncertainty because it opens up this this vista, it's like you're in the mountains and looking out over this wide expanse and there's this vista of openness all of a sudden where you don't have to question and you don't have to think and you can just be present in the experience, in the moment. Yeah, yeah, beautifully said. And and the yoginis, I mean, they're all about spontaneity, sahaja, spontaneity, you know, just just the immediacy of, of awareness of, of your experience you know, right here, right now, you don't have to be in a certain context, or you don't have to recite a certain mantra, you just need to, to open your mind to be aware right now, you know, wake up (laughs) right here. I think that was a good place to kind of to kind of uh, start wrapping the discussion is on on that point we just made. However, I do want to talk a little about Greg, what are you? First of all, are you working on any any projects right now? Is there anything else that you have in the works on the stove? Yeah, um, I work kind of funny. I mean, it tends to be more more inspirational. Like some of some of these people I know, they're just total workhorses, constantly working on on books and things. Um, for me, it's more like okay, there's 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 something rising up and it needs to come out. So there can be long gaps between my stuff, but. Um, there's a couple of things I'm working on right now. One of them is a, is a reprint of the magical union of East and West, but it's coming out from 
original Falcon. It's going to be called New Aeon Tantra. Um, it's significantly revised and expanded and totally different feel than, than Yogini Magic. So if, if Yogini Magic was the first book of mine that you read, then this one will, might feel almost alien because <laughs> it's, it's a very different feel. Um, but I'm excited about it because it has a, a ton of new material in it. And this is a book that's kind of been around in one form or another for, for decades now. So it's kind of cool to see, see it coming out yet again in a new and shiny form. Awesome. What is there a timeline for that? It's, it's almost wrapped up on my end. I'm waiting for some, uh, some illustration okay. work and, um, an, uh, an introduction from a colleague and should be ready to go. So hopefully winter of this year cool. yeah. or maybe early next nice. year. And that, yeah, that's from original Falcon. And then I'm slowly working on a, a sort of sequel, I guess you could say to Yogini magic. So oh. not a lot to, to say about that just yet. Magical silence, but it's in the works. <laughs> well, keep us posted about that because we will definitely um, amplify the signal on that one when it comes out. Awesome. Where can people find you if they want to talk to you, if they want to, you know, learn about what you're doing? Do you, what's the best way to, to find you, get in touch with you, follow your work? Probably one of the best ways is going to be email. I have wild awareness at proton.me. I have a really crummy website. <laughs> <laughs> if, if anybody listening is, is a web designer, hit me up because it needs help. Um, but my website is gregorypetersauthor.com. And it it looks like something that was designed uh, like in the early days of the web, because that's about where my my web skills are. <laughs> and then I am still on, on Twitter, or I guess it's X. I don't know how long that'll be around, but <laughs> you can find me at uh, gpeters418 at Twitter. Well, we just want to thank you so much, Gregory. This is such an important topic and it's such an interesting subject and i think it's something that could genuinely benefit people's um, lives if they're willing to engage with it explore it and be open in that in that heartfelt way that you brought to brought to mention many times in this interview love your book love it i i I adore it it's it's really accessible it's but it's also very deep and um, i just want to thank you for for putting this out into the public sphere. And I also want to say Om Shakti. And, you know, I, 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 we pray that this uh, humble podcast episode will be uh, an acceptable uh, offering to all of the yogini and and to the goddess herself. Ah, Thank you so much. That means the world to, to hear that. And yeah, the book was, was written out of love as an offering to to the goddess and the yoginis. So, Jai Kaliki Deva. Cool. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, guys. Okay, that was Gregory Peters with an excellent and interesting uh, discussion on the mystifying yoginis or yogini, yoginis. I'm not sure what the plural is, so I ask our listeners to forgive me if I have said it incorrectly. With that said, very interesting subject, and I think Gregory is the ideal person to discuss it because he's living it. He's 
gone an expedition out there. He's he's also brought it to the West through a wonderful book. I've loved this book. It's intriguing. It's filled with practical material too. So you can pick it up and you can start working on developing a relationship with these powerful female spiritual um, intelligences if you want to. You can use the book for that. Or if you're just interested in learning more about it, yeah, and if you're if you're involved in tantric Buddhism or uh, Hindu tantra, or if you're interested in female powerful sp- female spiritual figures, I recommend this book for those reasons too, because I think it would supplement your your studies or your practices. Besides that, I have found Gregory Peters to do, just be such a nice person, such a kind, friendly, good person. So even in that regard, I'm just grateful to have been able to get to know him as a person. And he's one of those people that I I feel the work is justified in in the person you find. You know, you see a person who's clearly cultivated wisdom and compassion. His meditative practice is evident in the equilibrium of his personality and his peaceful demeanor. And that goes a long way too. Sometimes I think beyond the dramatic, flashy effects and experiences that people may have from rituals. To me, the the greatest fruits that you can see in a person are contentment, serenity, equilibrium, equanimity, and peace. And uh, I I would say that I have seen all of those things in him. So I want to give him a thanks for coming on the show. It was wonderful. And I hope in the future we can have him on again. Well, it's going to be hard to follow that endorsement. But um, yeah, I agree. Just a fun guy to talk to. Interesting topic. We haven't touched on, touched really on that topic much at all. And so that was, it was good for us to kind of go into that territory. And uh, hopefully it was interesting and, and enlightening for our audience as well. So moving on, what, what do you have for us this week as far as your book? I have a little book. I've, I've really enjoyed this book. I've had it for a while. It's called Untold Tarot, The Lost Art of Reading Ancient Tarots by Caitlin Matthews. In my opinion, just about anything Caitlin Matthews writes is high quality. She is a wise woman with great insight and much experience. And she has, you know, she's written many books on many um, spiritual subjects, magical subjects. This book is just an interesting book because it discusses uh, the traditional use of tarot in a cardamantic context. So, until tarot goes into old school traditional uh, tarot reading, um, so it goes into divinatory skills which originate in continental cardamancy and um, interpretive techniques that come from uh, cardamantic interpretation, and it's more true to the way the tarot was originally used. The name, So again, the name of the book is Untold Tarot, The Lost Art of Reaching, Reading Ancient Tarots by Caitlin Matthews. I definitely recommend it. It's really an excellent little book. Um, really pleased with it. It's, it's just a nice thing to have on the bookshelf. If you, I'm a, I'm a reader of of several decades at this point, and I am familiar with much of what's in this book, but it is also nice to have a compendium of the traditional interpretations of the cards and traditional methods of reading 
the cards. Um, it's just nice to have all of that. You know, the, the way people look at tarot today is not the same way people looked at it in the first, say, 100 years after its inception, for instance. And it was used, it was used in a certain manner. And this book will help you to understand that, help you understand the context context of the tarot in relationship to other forms of card divination, and also help you to understand some important and often neglected elements of, of the tarot, um, again, such as the virtues which are present in the tarot, the medieval Catholic context of the tarot. Paul Hewson does that too in his excellent book, uh, the most recent one he put out on the tarot. Great. Sounds very interesting. Thank you for doing that. Okay, that is it for us today. Thank you to everyone who's listening. As always, we appreciate you. Feel free to promote us, like us, you know, subscribe, share, etc. We are grateful for the support. Very grateful for the support. We've been doing this for a while, and it's still a labor of love. We don't make a cent from it. Um, this is just to do something we enjoy doing and explore things that we're passionate about and share them with you in the hopes that we can be a helpful resource for those of you who are also seeking insight.